And here we go. Once again, it's time for Poets of the East. I thought we'd uh, bring this off to a rollicking start. Let me introduce my good friend and colleague, Misha Danduda. Misha, welcome. Good evening. Thank you very much for inviting me to this new episode of Poets of the East. Really a royalty, really royal poets of the highest level. Congratulations, main producer, Rick Spisak. Oh, you're very welcome, my friend. So we have three really amazing poets to start with. So let me bring on our good friend, international poet and poet friend, poet producer, Eva Petropoulou-Liano. You want to say anything about Eva, sir? I would mention the fact that she is the uh, incorporation of the, let's say, intellectual cultural management, uh, being in the same time an excellent poet and, in, and also an excellent cultural manager, um, managing to put together uh, literates from all the meridians and parallels and uh, connecting people and arts in this way. Therefore, I appreciate and admire her very much. Thank you so much. Let's hear from Eva. And uh, I'm very happy to be with you, Richard, and uh, I congratulate you for everything. Your work is amazing. I see everything you do for poetry and your work I like. And Thank I'm you. very honored and happy to be with you today. Well, it's my pleasure, believe me. Uh, I have uh, enjoyed your work and your tremendous work internationally. Uh, it, you, you are not just an artist, not just a poet, but you're an artist who works internationally, works with the globe. And I'm going to say even better than that, you work with children. And I think that's, that's really wonderful. Um, I have had uh, three wonderful children in my life. And uh, I don't regret a day of all the headache and heartache and all that stuff. So I salute you, Eva, poet, international artist, and, uh, and children's author as well. Thank so, you. I, I am, I'm a children's author, and it's now about uh, 20 years I'm children's author. And I write uh, for children because I am a children also. I feel like a children, and I Good. feel like the children they can uh, give us uh, the the chance, the hope, and uh, as I say, the children know better. And if someone is lucky to have a children in his uh, family, me, I'm not uh, married yet, so I see just the children of my uh, cousins and uh, friends. Uh, it's a bless, a bless from God because uh, they know exactly what happened in uh, a lot of uh, situation, and they have always something very smart to say. And when I do my workshop, because I do freelance workshop with adults in uh, Greece and other countries, and uh, workshop uh, with uh, children, and I learn to them how to write stories, uh, the stories of the children, they are remarkable. They just create a character and uh, it's amazing. It's really amazing what they can tell you, say to you, or they can imagine. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. 
uh, some of the wisest humans that have ever lived has said, look at children, be like children, be full of wonder, be full of magic, full of creativity, and, and that is children. I had the fortunate situation um, when my children were in a, a special uh, school for creative kids. Um, I was asked, would I teach a class in drama? And I said, absolutely, I, I would love to. And the teacher, yeah. the principal asked me, well, okay, but um, what, what kind of drama will you teach? And I said, we will read Shakespeare. And she said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. These are second graders to sixth graders. So you're probably looking at seven-year-olds to say maybe 12-year-olds. She said, do you really think they'll understand Shakespeare? I said, absolutely. If it's well presented, they will absolutely. So I said, we're going to do King Lear, which most people think of as a play about a crazy king. I said, let's look at it this way. Look at it through a child's eyes. The play starts with a family around the dinner table. And the father asks the children, who loves him more? Well, what child hasn't wondered who loves dad and mom more? Does mom and dad love this one or this one? Every child knows that. And she said, oh, are you going to have like a cartoon book for the kids? And I said, no, no, no. They're going to read it right in the Shakespearean language. I said, but we're going to discuss each scene. And I said, I'll tell you what, you sit with me for one day. And if you think the children don't understand, then you tell me. <laughs> well, within an hour, she said, I can't believe the kids understand this. I said, of course they understand. This is, this is the same life they live. Uh, their dad may not be crazy, but <laughs> they, of course they understand. Of course they understand. Us, the children, they can't even swim. When they come in this world, they come in the, in the belly of their mother with a full of water in the dark. So right. the children, they are not afraid of dark. They are not afraid of water. Just leave them to be free. The children, they are crying because they are coming to an unknown world. That's why we have the cry of the children. The children know how to protect themselves and they know how and who uh, love them or hate them or who is dangerous because they are like, um, they, are, they are so innocent. They can see what we cannot see, but with uh, the do not and uh, not and uh, all these um, uh, things that we fool them in their head, they lose their uh, personality. A children in a seven, eight years old, he has his personality, he know what is going on. That's why the bad people, they try to get children in very early age. And after nine years, they threw away. We have to protect the children and we have to listen to them and to see what are they are writing or what they are painting. The painting soul the, of the children say a lot to us. We can understand if someone is uh, um, it's going to a children just to, you know, to disturb or to just uh, children is not happy in the home. They are kind of 
draw walnuts in their paintings. So for me, I'm very observed. I observe the children. When I have children in my, my workshop, I observe them and I always ask them to introduce themselves and to talk to me about their fears. And uh, all the children, when I talk to them, I don't know why, but after the nine or 10 years, all the children, they're afraid of the dark. Imagine how much they are, um, they are bullying and manipulated because they are coming from the dark and they are coming from the water. They have that for nine months. So this is uh, their uh, physical nature space. And nine years after, they're afraid. I believe that we have to be more kind and more gentle with the children. They know more than us. Absolutely. Well, let me say, my dear friends and neighbors, let me introduce you to Eva Petropoulou Lianoi. Is that close? Eva Petropoulou Lianou. Lianou. Okay. This is a wonderful poet a storyteller, uh, a writer of stories for children, an educator, someone who cares tremendously about not just people, but the little people who will run the world tomorrow. Thank you so much, Eva. Now, let me ask you about little Eva. When you were a young person, when did you know you were a writer? I think that... um... (laughs) I was born to be a writer. <laughs> Maybe too uh, selfish, but uh, uh, all the people, all friends say, I'm going to get married, I'm going to be brief, I'm going to buy a car. And me, I was saying, I will be in an interview with Richard Spizak when I will be 40 <laughs> something, and I will tell about my stories and my poetry. And uh, I was always say I want to be an author, a writer, and I was always writing, always writing and um, stay humble, stay very kind and uh, stay and uh, write the poems for my mom, you know, uh, and recite poems, sure. celebration, mother, uh, mother celebration, father celebration and Christmas and Easter. And now uh, in the school, I want to tell my poem. I want to recite my poem, and I was very proud. So I believe that we make our decision. We make who, who we, we are, who, who will become. We decide because we understand our inner self. I believe that um, we must respect ourselves, our dreams, our wishes, and after, uh, when we respect, uh, respect uh, ourselves, we definitely can understand the other person. If we love ourselves, and I don't mean um, the selfish or the narcissistic love, uh, I don't mean the mother or the brother or the companion love, I mean the love with the L-O-V-E, the L uh, capital, as uh, uh, God talk that if we love, we love everyone. We cannot love dogs 
and hates the cat. We cannot love the black and hate the, the white. We cannot love the red and hate the orange. So for me, I'm a pacific person. I come uh, with peace and I, I create bridges. So in these two years of the pandemic almost, one year, half almost, I write a lot of poetry because I express my feelings as I spent a lot of time in, uh, at home. Because in Greece, we had the most several lockdown from every country. We stay almost six months, one year at home. And uh, I write poetry because I want to communicate all this um, love thing and um, stay uh, safe, stay strong, believe in your dreams, wishes, uh, write verses and understand that we are all the same. So my poetry travel from one country to the other and they translate my poetry and suddenly, suddenly I come here with you now. You, you know me, you're in US school in India, in Bangladesh, in France, in China, in Japan, in Taiwan, in Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and uh, they know me, they know my poetry and the peaceful method. I am a bridge of culture, of peace, of love. And I want the people understand that if we, the poets, the authors, we say more poetry, more stories, we need storytellers. We need the culture. We need the painting. We need the sculptors, we need the artistic uh, idea, our artistic self. We need all that. This is the piece. If we have all that, I believe that we are not going to have war in the future. Absolutely. So you've been writing since you were a young girl. You've been yes. writing, you've been speaking internationally, your work's been translated. You have traveled from your home across the globe with your words and with your lovely ideas. That's so fantastic. But I've got to ask you this. How about if we hear some of the poems? So Yay, would you read us some of your poetry, my dear? Yes, it will be honored for me. So I speak for, um, you will understand. I speak for uh, the heart. From a heart to a heart. My heart, not a transaction. My heart is not a paper you can write and delete. My heart is made by butterflies and honey. For every person, it's dear to me. My heart is not a slave. I don't like slaves of opinion. I'm not looking at the beauty of bodies. I'm looking for a perfect match that will not change the mind and ask to be refound back. I like honestly, I don't like to beg. Love must be free. And we must care for each other. People are so afraid of kindness and generosity. People, they don't know how to give away without waiting. Remember, 
continue to give, this is how you become rich. Very nice. Very nice. I, I, the only thing I can say is please give us another one, please, Eva. This is the, the piece, and this is what I believe for uh, people and for religion. We pray as Jews, we pray as Christians, we pray as Muslims. In all those prayers, we were one. We don't need the war. We pray as the children play. We pray as a newborn look at the sun. We pray as we see the sea for the first time we pray. This thing called the virus came the night to our bed. Called dark angel, he tried to take our souls, tried to take our dreams, our existence. We call the source above, we pray to the Holy Spirit, the darkness come above our houses, the gray clouds near the windows. Nobody knew his name, so they call him son of the crown. Nobody, no injuries, no blood, a body start to become an empty bottle of full, full of air. No breath. You cannot breathe. We must fight. We pray as a bird sings in the forest. We pray as we travel to the moon for the first time. We pray against the beast. We must fight. Do not panic because at the end, the angel and him shall rise again. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I, I must tell you, when I was a young child, I loved history. I just, I just loved history. And I was looking in the bookstore for a book on history to learn something about ancient history. And here I was, just a young boy of eight years old, and on the shelf of history, I found Homer's Iliad. So I have had a copy of Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey near me my whole life. I have drunk so deep from that wonderful Greek. So I, I have a great appreciation for all things Greek. And you, I think, are a wonderful exemplar of that spirit of sharing that great spirit of Greek poets. I, I, I absolutely salute you, Eva. Please tell us another poem. I want to make you a surprise because this is my library be behind me. And uh, I have a special books that are close to me. So every time I read something. So this one, this one is Omiros Iliada. This is a book you want and you like in Greek. And it's coming from my school when I was almost 
12 years old. No kidding. Yes, That's this wonderful. Is my, this is my book. This is the Homeros, Ulysses. So when he was starting, he was saying, Tonandra, Tom Politropo, Pesmu, Thea, Puchronia, Paraverne, Sampatise, Istrias, Toayo Castro, Chanthropon, Gnorise, Polontus Topus, Ketignomi, Kepase, Plistos, Sinforesta Pelaga. Zitodas, Postin Patrida, Tuavlavos, Napai, Metusindrofus, Maketia Ftus, Denglitos, Maoso, Kaimokia, Nihe, Yatimonashi, Hafika, Napodicotus, Krima, Yasevi, Pufagane, Uranodromo, Iliu, Tavodia, Ketusteris, Tugirismu, Timera, Pesta, Puacapu, Kesemas, Pea, Tuvia, Cori. When Ilistis, Omiros, start, this is uh, how he asked the aspiration from the muse to give him an aspiration to write about the voyage, the travel that Ulysses made to find his Isaki, to find his dear Penelope. So he say, tell me goddess, tell me my muse, what I have to do. Uh, so I will go back to my country, to Isaki, and he leaves Troya with a lot of uh, boats and uh, companions. So this was a, big, a little surprise for you. Thank you so much. That's lovely. I want to read, if I can, um, two more poems. Please, please do. Absolutely. Wishes become prayers. Prayers become words in the God ear. Whispers coming from angels. My poetry is a bridge between earth and heaven. One request I have, one word I cry out to all of you. Peace, peace, irini, pace, peace. Beautiful, beautiful. That's so wonderful. You want to read us one more? Um, I have another one, if I don't take a lot of your time. No, no, no. In fact, if you'd like, I would love to have you read one in Greek. Yes, all right. So uh, I was not uh, really prepared because I have everything in my phone. So wait, oh. wait. Ah, yes. Δύο καρδιές. Το πουλί είπε, εάν κάποτε θα ήθελες να με αγαπήσεις, θα ήθελα να έχεις δύο καρδιές. Ο τελευταίος που μου είπε ότι με αγάπησε βαθιά, μπήκε στην καρδιά μου και μου την κομμάτισε. Έτσι λοιπόν, από τότε πετάω ψηλά, παρέα με τα σύννεφα. Εάν λοιπόν θέλεις να μ' αγαπήσεις, θα ήθελα να έχεις μια καρδιά. Μια καρδιά δανική, να μου χαρίσεις. Now in English, metaphor of heart. I hope the birds say, 
if you decide to love me. I hope you have two hearts to give me one. The last one who told me that he, that he loves me so much and deeply, he entered my old heart, made it fall apart and melt away. Since then, I fly high without a heart, with the clouds of the company. So if you love me, keep that in mind. I need a heart, a lone heart. Beautiful, beautiful. Eva, thank you so very much for visiting with us and sharing your, your wonderful poetry. You have a great heart and your great heart doesn't just serve you, doesn't just serve Greece, but serves the world and, and of course its children. Thank you so very much for your time. Please continue to write and write and write and have a long and wonderful life, my friend. You, you, you are so an much. inspiration to our poets. Thank you so much, Rita Spike. Continue to bring people together, poets together, bridge. We need a bridge of culture. And continue to be kind. Continue to read poems, books. It's not a bad thing to be kind. Just love it and share with people. Maybe my poetry touched the heart. And that is my message. I am looking to touch the heart of the people because only heart can communicate with God, angels, and we understand each other without talking. All these verses is like music. Sometimes you hear something and you don't know what is going on or what he say, but you can feel the prison and you want to cry. So maybe that's why I travel from my home without a passport, every place, with peace, love, follow your dreams. Thank you, Thank Eva. You. Thank Have a wonderful you so night. Much. Take care of yourself, my friend. Bye-bye. Yes, Thank you. Bye-bye from Greece. The amazing Eva Propopolo Yanoi. Uh, just amazing. Marcia, your comment, sir? Well, hard to add something. Maybe only the fact that besides the intellectual dimension, the political talent and the managerial intelligence are also dubbed by a wonderful soul, by a very special sensitivity, and all this makes the poet, in this case, the poetess. Well, thank you for those wonderful words, my friend. And now, another amazing poet. This time, instead of Greece, we're traveling over to the U.S., and uh, here we go with the lovely and charming poet, Catrice Greer. Here we go. Hello there. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very kind of you to ask. Good, and thank you for uh, resending the link for me. Who Not knows what happened? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter at all, exactly. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's, it's my pleasure, believe me. And, you know, the purpose of this Poets of the East project is to get a chance to not just hear the poetry of wonderful poets, but to know a little bit more about them, you know? Sure. Uh, to me, the artist's life <laughs> is such 
an amazing adventure tale. And I can never have enough of hearing about the marvelous lives of creative people. Uh, I find it endlessly inspiring. And, you know, most of us don't have the luxury of, you know, a lively stipend that we can wander the globe and just, you know, pour out our, our, our ink. Most of us have a very challenging experience trying to make the time and the space to, to create our, our art. So one of the first questions I like to ask, and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, Poets of the East is absolutely transformed because we have a chance to chat with Catrice, who is one of the most amazing poets I've met. Catrice, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for welcoming me. Thank you for asking me on. It's a great show. You've had on some amazing poets, so I feel in very good company. You are, my dear. We are honored to hear your words. Okay? And I, I noticed in the background there's there's a few books back there. I do. I have quite the library. Uh, I do. Well, luckily I'm a Taoist, so I'm not jealous. <laughs> but I am impressed. It's always so wonderful to talk with a literate person who has basically enjoyed the treasury that is that is human literature. And uh, I, I salute you just for that. Okay? How about just for Thank that? Thank you. Thank you very much. And I, I see you have a little furry friend in the background. Yes, this is uh, Miss Lily, and uh, she is she is my friend. She's family. She's wonderful. <laughs> great. She's That's very great. loving. So, uh, so I suppose you can say she's the the library cat. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> very nice, my dear. Very nice. Well, the way I like to start typically is, you know, no. <laughs> No one wanders into poetry because they want to make a million bucks. No, no one goes to poetry because that's a great way to get famous in this silly world. But people who come to poetry, people who, who are so blessed to bring poetry into this world, it's a calling. And I always ask my poets, when did you know you didn't have a choice but you were going to be a poet? Um. I was I was pretty young, but I, I can't say I knew totally what it meant. Um, I was I, I was about maybe eight or nine years old, and I know people say those kinds of things, but um, I I was just going through a lot of things, you know, um, and I really loved words, and I started reading very early, uh, about three ish. You know, but your comprehension doesn't click in until a bit later. Uh, and uh, but what happened was um, I read an awful lot, eight, nine. My reading level was extremely high, and that isn't said to brag. It's said to say that I just didn't have a lot of friends um, where I could communicate how I wanted to. I loved my friends, but. Um, but we all had different things, different gifts. And so I just lived in books. And my parents were very, 
gracious in that they had, this is what I grew up with. I don't know any different. This is home to me. So uh, I, I literally lived in the bookcase. And so when big things happen, you know, my parents or something I wanted to know, they'd say, go look it up. Um, there were shelves that I could access and shelves that I was not supposed to access. As my mother said, just because you're, just because you can read doesn't mean you should. <laughs> These are grown ups books. So, um, there were things like that and anything I wanted to know, they, they had a habit of directing me to the books. But also my emotions, I learned how to figure that out through books. Um, that being said, somewhere between, uh, between nine-ish, eight, nine, in the area, I was taking swimming lessons, and I had a, um, in the 70s, in the early 70s, I was taking swimming lessons, and or mid-70s, rather, I was taking swimming lessons, and they're at someone's home, and there's a, a final recital kind of thing where you do it so you can pass, and I was intermediate, and, uh, well... It didn't quite go as planned. I was a child that had, <laughs> I was a child that did everything in my head. And as many people can relate who do things in their head, other people who are a bit more extroverted don't always interpret that well. Um, so in terms of swimming, it was interpreted as fear and hesitation, but I was really trying to visualize the steps in my head. Once I can visualize steps, I know how it's supposed to go and then I can feel. Well, I was pushed in the pool because um, I was taking too long. I wasn't ready, and I'll just say that didn't go well. I bet. And so I had my first out-of-body experience in the pool, and the paramedics had to come. Oh, no. And um, someone pulled me out of the pool, and uh, I did. There was just a process. I bet. I and bet. that was a big deal for a little kid, sure. and a big deal for my dad who came to pick me up. Uh, who I got bet. that call? Yeah. Um, we never did tell my mom um, <laughs> because uh, that was going to be a lot for a mom who had. We little ones, I was the eldest, and she was worried about everything. You know, yeah. there was just yeah. so much. So we didn't tell her for those reasons. Yeah. Um, and my dad just watched over me to make sure I didn't dry drown at night, to make sure all the fluid was out. Yeah. Um, uh, but that being said, I had a lot of stuff that I could not say. Right. Right. And I didn't know where to put it. Mm-hmm. So that's when I just started. Um, I had already tried to write and things like that, but that's when I knew that something different happened at that point. Words started coming at a rapid rate than they had been before. That's the best way I can explain that. Sure. It was like a channel opened and long circuitous explanation, but that's kind of when I knew that this thing that's happening to me is a friendly thing. And... I'm going to be with it for a long time. I didn't quite know what it was for yet, but I knew it made me feel better. And I lived in words, and words came out in a certain way, so I kept going. I imagine, like a lot of us, you were you were one of those children chased from the adult section of the library. 
Yes, you don't belong over here. <laughs> oh, no. Your books are over there, and I said, but I've read all the good books. In yeah, there. yeah, I'm finished with those. I, I wanted to read the tomes. You know, um, that was the big thing. And of course, by the time I got to middle school, um, they were making. There were just kids that needed um, accommodations, not because they weren't learning well, but because everyone has a different way of learning. It Absolutely. was just because they needed a little more, or they needed to go off, go off into a different direction. I happened to be one of those kids, and I got a lot of latitude to do that. So they would give me paper, and they'd go say, go into the writing corner that they created for us. And when you finish your work, you can just go there. And I didn't have to go to recess often. And uh, it kind of repeated itself in high school. I feel very fortunate for that. But this day and time, they would call something like that an IEP, you know. But it felt like, to some of the other kids, privilege. But for kids who aren't, who maybe need a little extra, um, it, it, it almost feels similar as when you're not getting enough if that makes sense. Sure, absolutely. So they were very good to me. I had fabulous instructor, instructors. I'm very grateful for such care and love in my life that made me who I am today. Well, you've, you've done it well, my dear. You've done it well. Um, one question, I, I, I'm intrigued. The experience that you had there uh, coming out of the pool being recovered like that, I'm wondering, I mean, it was so obviously a spiritual connection, but I'm wondering if you you read it as a spiritual experience or just a terrifying experience. Do you recall? Uh, I do, and um, it was a spiritual experience. It was the first time I saw something that I had never seen before, and... Um, it was in the pool, but not in the pool. Sure, sure. Uh, if that makes sense. And I oh, didn't absolutely. understand where it came from Yeah. to come for me. And it was kind. And the music and the lights, and it was beautiful. And I've never forgotten it. Yeah, that sounds like one of those transfigurative experiences. I, I, I'm, I'm so wonderfully happy for you that you had that experience, that that uh, you got that special keen vision added to you when you were so young. Uh, a powerful experience like that really can mold us. Um, I had a, an early transformational experience myself. I, I was uh, very sickly as a child, and I spent a lot of time in that uh, two- to four-year-old age uh, in an oxygen tent in the hospital. And I felt pretty sorry for myself. You know, I was lonely. I was sad and all that. But I had a transformational experience when one night, I, again, I was feeling pretty sorry for myself. They wheeled, they wheeled a young girl into the, into the same room who was in a crib, but it was an unusual crib. I'd never seen one like that before. It had a cage over the top. In other words, the bars just didn't come up on the side. Oh, yeah. It had a cage over the top, too, right? Yes. And... I felt so sorry for her, and she was wailing and screaming with all for all she was worth, right? Yeah. And and as bad as I had felt for myself two minutes ago, my heart just went out to her. So I started singing to her, started talking to her, and I eventually was able to calm her down. And and as young as I was, 
I, I had a realization that no matter how bad you feel, if you can make somebody else feel a little better, you know what? It rubs off on you too. And that has been one of my guideposts that, that I've always lived by. And, and in my writing, it shows, even though I sometimes talk about very deadly, serious, horrific situations, I try to put a little humor in there. I try to laugh at the human tragedy, at the human experience, rather than just bemoan it. So I, I can absolutely relate. Thank you so much for telling such a, a deep, significant story. Thank you for letting me share it. It's you know, sometimes it's well received, sometimes it isn't. Well, but it's it's true, and I don't. It's nothing I can do with it. You know, um, I was so young; I wouldn't have known any better. I wouldn't have known how to imagine something so magnificent. Um, I'm very grateful that it came to me as a child, so that I would not second guess myself. Um, and believe that it is a created memory. Uh, it, it was a thing. I even brought it up to my dad at the time, and he was stunned. But he also explained to me, listen, uh, you can talk to me about this as much as you'd like, and I know that you don't tell lies. I wasn't very good at I just couldn't do it. <laughs> uh, it wasn't something that came naturally for me. I was a truth teller um, to a fault. And so he knew that I wasn't making it up, <laughs> but he did say that I'm not so sure the world will embrace this, <laughs> so you can talk to your dad. Well, you have a wise father, that's for sure. <laughs> okay, let me ask you the next obvious question. Now, you luckily in your young years had a chance to go sit in that writer's corner and, and work through your concepts, your writing. Um, did you continue, say, in high school? Were you on the newspaper or the yearbook or any of that? Did you do that sort of thing? I did. I was admitted uh, early for that. Um, as soon as I went, I went to an all-girls private school oh, here wow. in Towson, Maryland, called Notre Dame Preparatory School. Ah. Um, mainly, um, my parents recognized that I wasn't going to, as my mom put it, farewell in public schooling. Um, and I would just be kind of sequestered to a little group. They didn't want that. Um, they recognized that I need the education, but I need to be with people that I could also well socialize and be accepted. So wow. I did go to private schooling, um, and my first year in, I tried to apply for the creative writing um, classes, but I was an underclassman. I was a freshman and usually didn't get in. I believe unless you were a junior or a senior, and there was a sophomore class you could take of something, but I wasn't eligible for that either. So the I, the teacher that I went to ask if I could get in, and I took all my stuff, you know, and he gave me a composition book and, and, and an assignment and told me over the summer this is what I want you to do, and, and I brought it back, and I was early admitted to the other class because he said I was one of very few students in all his years that he'd ever given that assignment to and who actually did it over the summer without any prompting or checking in. I, he said I did more than I was asked. So I did do that. I was taken into the creative writing group. I stayed there for the rest of my years. 
uh, and uh, sophomore, junior, senior year. I got private counsel with that uh, instructor, Mr. William Waters, all year. Um, I also took English literature classes as well with all of, you know, my other students. Um, uh, and I became the editor and then the editor-in-chief of our creative journal, which was called Esprit. And it's kind of this, you know, I got to do all my crazy astronomy thinking, you know, because it was accepted. He was into black holes. I was into black holes. I finally found another human that listened to my astronomy babbling. And so um, he was a great mentor. He is an amazing human being. Um, and I, I would get one-on-one -on -one instruction. He would, he would offer me books. We had a library in there. The librarian, Miss Cullen, uh, would constantly give me books and suggestions. I spent a lot of time in the library. Um, yeah, I, I did those things in high school, and I'm, that's, it's another marker that made me, really. Uh, it, it allowed me to flourish without interruption. I'm deeply grateful to my instructors, but I'm also grateful to my fellow um, classmates because that would not have worked so well if they didn't trust me. Uh, I was in a school where in our graduating class there were only 128 students, five black girls in the entire class, and that was considered significant. That's not typical. It's usually one or two or zero, you know, yeah. five maybe. So, um, And so I'm grateful to my classmates for being my sisters, my friends. We didn't know any different the way this world comes at you. We met at 13 years old or 14, and some of them had known each other since lower school, you know. So we just learned to bond, and because they trusted me to do what I needed to do, I got to flourish. You know, I didn't get to do it all by myself. It was a huge community. That's wonderful. That, that's, it's so nice to hear someone had a nourishing experience like that. I, I had a bit of nourishment like that when I was in elementary school. Um, our principal enjoyed music so much, and she felt it was such an important part of life that she insisted that every first grader get to hear the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra in the most magnificent Art Deco Hall uh, in Pittsburgh, the, what's called the, the Shriners Hall. And... When I here here I was attending this concert, and it it so moved me that I was literally brought to tears by the music. And the principal, God bless her, comes over to me. She says, "Ricky, what's wrong?" I said, "The music, it's so beautiful." And she goes, "Yeah, but what's wrong?" And I go, "The music, it's so beautiful," because I I couldn't articulate anymore how I felt so transfigured by it. Yes. And she, God bless her, let me go with every class that went to the symphony I got to go oh, on. Oh, my heavens. What a special oh, it was, educator. It, it changed my life. It absolutely changed my life. I got to start playing music two years ahead of my peers. And uh, mm -hmm. music 
was uh, and remains an integral part of my life. I, I played for many, many years. And uh, <laughs> it, it's so funny. When in the late 60s all my friends were into rock and roll, uh, I had my own Dixieland band, and we played all the hits of the 20s and 30s. <laughs> so I, I, I have been out of step for a very, very long time, and I'm, I'm accustomed to it. <laughs> so we've talked a little bit, learned just a little bit about the young Catrice. Let's talk about Catrice, the young woman, coming into her own. How did what what path did you find for this young woman, so creative, such a great writer? Where where did you go next? Uh, after high school, I went to college. Uh, I didn't finish at the time, but I did go, and I went all the way up to my senior year. Um, that was really tricky because I had I love my family. I will start off there. But like many families, we had difficulties and challenges and traumas. And I had my share of significant traumas, which impacted my ability to be as successful as I needed to be in school. But we also, like many families after divorce, experience of, of sort of a, a plummeting of economic resources. And for some, that takes you from what we were, middle class, to below poverty level. The dichotomy of that and receiving privileges that are well above your class are very, there. it's a balance. Sure. Uh, so I said all that to say it impacted, to some degree, my success in college, as well as my own choices in terms of how to manage that. I didn't have the skills to understand how to do all that stuff. And I had a lot of skills, but, you know, your frontal lobe is still developing. I mean, it doesn't matter what your brain can do. Your frontal lobe is still developing, especially emotionally. So, um it was just very overwhelming in some ways. College wasn't, to be honest, uh, but um, other life things were. Sure. But that being said, I still got to do a lot of awesome stuff. I mean, I got a job through my godmother at uh, Park Sausages during my um, winter semesters, uh -huh. and I was a quality control technician for the factory. Uh, so I worked alongside the engineer there. We just did chemical processes uh, to make sure that everything was food safe and everything was working, kind of like you do in your own kitchen. How's the temperature on the oven, the food? Is it thawed out well? Is it What's the temp on this, um, et cetera, except I'm doing it for thousands upon thousands of pounds. Um, let's see. I also went to work in TV. Uh, as an intern, can I can I stop you just for a second? I yes. have to I have to praise you. You know, so few people understand how significant, how intrinsic science is to our lives. You clearly understood exactly why that job was important, and the way you put it 
which I, I just loved. You said, I'm protecting families. You know, yeah. this, this was the job. This was a mission. This was, you know, you were working to make sure that people were healthy. Yeah. God bless you for it. Thank you. you. Know, <laughs> God bless you for it. It was an honor and a pleasure. And uh, it's, it was one of the most, it's a historic black-owned company here. Started way before my time. Uh, you know, and uh, I, I don't I don't want to give out the year because I'm not sure what year he opened it in the 50s or late 40s, something like that. But it, it's quite it was quite the big deal to be able to work in the original building and meet the meet the founder, Mr. Henry G. Parks, and then meet the person he passed the baton to um, and then go to the next facility along with them it's it's one of the most magnificent things in my life uh, to be part of history like that um but in addition to that let's see i did go to work in tv uh yeah, while i was please. in college as an intern uh for at the time it was a cbs affiliate here uh it was wbal um and wbal was owned by the hearst family at the time and I worked on two TV shows inside Baltimore, and uh, first Sunday with Kwaisi and Fume, who many people may recognize his name from being the president of the NAACP and a congressman, but right, at the time right. he was a delegate, and uh, he was very personable, very kind. I met an awful lot of people. I learned a lot of things. I learned to write uh, for TV. I learned to edit, and then my producer... The late Lyle Mason, who was a good friend and brother, who died last year, but he took this 19-year-old person in for several years, and he taught me everything he knew. Oh, that's wonderful. And then he let me fly. And he let me produce. He let me associate produce, and he let me produce, and he'd just walk away. And he'd pair me with the directors who were women, and he'd let me sit there in the director booth and learn. And he'd let me do many things. I I don't know anything in my life alone. Uh, there have been so many people who have just who just took a kid. Well. And planted seeds into me, so I got to do all those cool things. Let me let me tell you about my introduction to television because it's uh, fairly amusing. I um I have been poet, musician, artist, painter. I learned how to do light shows, and I I wanted to do that wonderful Native American cultural uh, set where I wanted to go and, and get my dream quest, get find out what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. And I had already been interested in uh, meditation, and I did comparative religious study as a young man. But when I was up in the mountains, I, I literally climbed to the top of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, and I was going to stay there until I got my, my dream. And the very, next, the very first morning that I was up there, a Native American walked up to me, just walking up the trail toward my camp, and he said, I dreamt about you. You're going to go back to Miami and get a job in television. And I said, oh, that's preposterous. I had, <laughs> I had friends that had degrees in journalism, degrees in, in media, couldn't get a job. Couldn't, couldn't. I said, look, 
I'm a poet light show artist. There, there's no place for me in television. Commercial television is such an incestuous place. People are rarely given opportunities in it. I, I just don't think that's possible. Needless to say, a few months later, I'm hired by a television studio. Okay? <laughs> My first day on the job, they said, okay, we've got to get this commercial. It was a broadcast house. We shot and, and produced commercials for the whole world, for the whole world. More, mostly the U.S., but they said stay on the, on the studio floor until they finish cutting this video, a commercial, and then you're going to take it right to the airport. So I'm standing there just cooling my heels. They were shooting a Dodge commercial with this archetypal Georgia cop, and the director kept having him repeat one line. It was the closing line. They wanted that tag delivered just right. He wasn't happy. So literally the whole afternoon they were working on one line, and the closing shot. Finally, they finish it. And before I could take it away, the, the producer said, everybody, hold still. Don't move. And then he turns to the director and says, get on the stage. And you get on the set. And he's like, man, look, we've been doing this crap all day. I want to get out of here. He said, look, I'm telling you, I'm the producer. Go sit on the set with talent. So the director, you know, wanders over. And unbeknownst to him, off off camera and out of his sight, they hand the producer a cream pie, which he then plants in the face of the director. I said, I can do this. I like this. This is my kind of work. <laughs> what was the program or the film it was, called? It was a Dodge car commercial. They, it was a ripoff of the theme from Smokey and the Bandit, where it was the, the Georgia cop stout fellow kind of cocked back in his chair and whatever it was, you know, they're selling Dodge trucks. And, but that one moment said to me, I, I can work in television. My, my last television job, I was a operations manager and senior producer at a TV station here, a bilingual station in Florida, but enough of me. Let's talk about you. Okay. So you, you have the opportunity to produce public affairs shows, I'm sure creative informational shows. That is so wonderful. That that is such a great opportunity. Now, you're obviously writing for commercial television. What else were you writing? I was writing for a newspaper, uh, and I I'm, I skipped a year. I started when I was 19. The story. I apologize. I skipped a year. So before I graduated high school in my senior year, I started writing for the historic Afro newspaper here in Baltimore as a junior intern. And uh, they they took me in because I was writing in high school. So I had a little, I thought I had a portfolio. It was really my poems <laughs> and uh, that I had been doing for school and my projects for school. And they thought, take a chance on this kid. So the latter half of my senior year, um, they let me be a features writer, a regular features writer, and a, uh, you remember back in the day when people edited it, you know, people know computers now, but back then, everything was pasted on the boards, and you had to go through and walk around and read all of the copy on the boards to participate in the editing, and everybody just kind of went around round robin. So I did that too. I learned to go out on interviews. I learned to conduct interviews. I just learned a lot of things. Um, oh, that's amazing. So I was writing that, and but after 
uh, the latter half of college and after college, I was mostly writing um, poetry. I was learning how to write spoken word beyond traditional poetry. Uh, I was learning how to, I was writing public affairs stuff for some cable access company uh, and, um, and a local magazine called Image Connections. Uh, writing articles for them. So when Haile Garima's, uh, Haile Garima, the filmmaker, uh, the Ethiopian filmmaker, had his movie premiere, Sankofa, um, I was granted an interview for the Baltimore premiere and wrote a, a multiple page uh, article and interview. I still have it. Um, who knew? And it's, it's, that's another highlight because he's awesome. <laughs> um, so I was doing things like that and then went on later in my later 20s to become a member of a marketing association called the Baltimore Marketing Association. And I was a junior board member and I was learning the business side of things and the business side of PR and learning how to, they were te allowing me to be part of these committees and like a co not the head of it, but sort of apprenticing under the head to learn how to pull these kinds of big things together Wonderful. and work with the media. And so I was doing stuff like that and just My learning goodness. how life worked. What an amazing, esteemed career. <laughs> I am so glad we did this. This is, this is an amazing story. You, my dear, have quite a talent and have done good work with it. And that shows, okay? I hope so. I, um. I hope so. I, I would hate to get to the end of my life and have wasted any of the wonderful things that have been seeded into me. If, if you'll allow me, I think that's impossible. Now, we've learned just a little bit about the wonderful Catrice. How about if we hear some of her writing? Sure. I think it's time. Sure. Um, is there anything particular you would like to hear? My dear, it is entirely in your very capable hands. Okay. Be directed by your spirit. I have no hesitation to say that. <laughs> and at least 10 or 15 minutes, be my guest. Okay? okay. So don't feel, don't feel compressed. Don't feel constrained. Thank you. Uh, there is one I, I really want to do if my computer would please uh, cooperate with me. <laughs> Take a minute if you need it. Take a minute because this is all editable. Now, in this case, to mention, the, the show is audio only. Okay. But if you like the video element, I'll post it as a, a video component to the show. But oh, I, primarily, I love this. It's for your podcast. That's right. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I like both. Um, I like well, both. With more than a bit of experience in video, I, I will allow you <laughs> approval. How's that? <laughs> Thank you. I, I like your – you're so animated and really engaged, and I would love to rewatch it. I um, Not everyone uh, connects with their with their talent, you know, with their guests very well depending people learn over time but you're very engaged and i i kind of enjoy it i would love to see it again well you will you will <laughs> i can promise you that thank you um 
This poem is called Today We Rebuild, and um, it was published in uh, April 26th of this year in Still Jack Daw magazine, uh, which is under the Dream Academy uh, with uh, Jason Conway, uh, publisher Jason Conway. And uh, so here we are. I believe it's in the second edition. And it's about, it's, it's a, it's a political piece, but it's an allegory. So I'm using nature to talk about extrajudicial killings, uh, immigration, the Holocaust, uh, racism, basically all the things that we think we've, people thought that we did so great at creating a new world, but we really need to rebuild. We see that it's just junk right now. It's their problems. And I also use the allegory of a prescribed burn. So if some people are aware of agriculture, you know, you take a plot of field and you're going to purposefully burn it down so that you can start over on purpose. But speaking of these ills in the world, we say we've done that. We say we took it down, but we really didn't get down to the root is the point. So uh, this is called Today We Rebuild. So much left unsaid. Covered in hay and manure, we called it garden. Said it was floral and pristine. Said the silences were natural. Said the dark-barked fallen oaks cut down by men with axes and strong-armed into submissive, woody death. We said it was the natural order of things. Seedlings left caged in winters we made. Root systems tilled, separated, broken into pieces, overwintered in summer. We said it was the natural order of things. Seeds blown from path to patch in need of fertile places to land. Spread roots, grow. Took them tagged, grabbed by throats, splash paint their fronds with red, corralled them, and we said it was natural. Lit a match on fields we wanted to flourish, but we wanted to reign over for all time. We left it as a glowing conflagration, never speaking of the blazing wall closing in, burning down the fields we know are ripe and lush, the fields that feed us, the fields that nourish our humanity as whole harvest. We took spades, shovels, holes, dug in, aerated, turned the soils, migrated some in, brought in backhoes to trudge up the moist, worm-ridden fungi past. We forget, we said, we did not want to repeat. No matter where we dig or climb, we come upon the fire we left untended. Thank you.
Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. Really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. My dear, your eloquence is uh, a blessing. I'll just say that. Please Thank continue. You. Thank you very much. Let's see what other goodies we have in here. I kind of like this uh, one piece called cortical cartography. <laughs> It's it's nerdy fun to me, and I really love it. Um, so it's about brain injury, and but it no, that's that's not the right way to present it. It's about neuroplasticity of the brain. It's about a brain a brain healing, and the exciting parts of that science. The fact that. We discover it as science, but it's it's the unknown that was taking place without us anyway discovering anything. It's happening, and it is vast. And to me, it's very much like, um, you know, talking about neurology and axons and neuronal potential, uh, but it's the same in synapses and dendrites. But when I think of things like that, I see the galaxy. You know, I, I see nebula, you know, I see black holes. I see so much going on that is out there but reflected in us, and it's just as exciting and unknown and amazing. So this is mapping the brain, cortical cartography. Um, I give thanks for you bravely doing this again. Traveling synapse by synapse, trails of electric pulses, jumping black hole gaps that used to remember, holding the dead space. A new soma body, birthing from bleating darkness. Show us the nucleus, the middles of what we were made of. Axons spread like kamikaze flying squirrels with arms akimbo, reaching dendrites touching, grateful for even this axon potential, sometimes on, sometimes off, praise for brave synaptic dives and jumps, grateful for rebirth myelin, insulating, protecting, making sure that we traffic on our way by the quickest route, charged in this dark matter discovery space, this astronomy building a new wrinkled city of light, crevices and crannies, gyri and sulci, bridges and valleys, jellied, crinkled mass, sectioned by loaves, all speaking trillions, simultaneous, synaptic voices prayerfully all at once. This chatter mines the neural network. We build a whole new world. Oh, bravo. 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 So, that was the amazing Catrice Greer. I'm going to play part two in a minute, 
But first, I want to share with you and my good friend, Mercia, uh, another pair of amazing poets. This is Robert Cole and Susie Reynolds coming to us from Brittany, two wonderful UK poets who have found a, a beautiful home in Brittany. And uh, Marcia, these two are just amazing. Well, I think they incorporate very much uh, from what I would call the British Poetry School uh, of the last 10, 15 years, consisting in a very personal combination of uh, exact construction, exact building of uh, images, of imagery, of metaphors, and uh, their very strong and uh, complex uh, fantasy. Uh, it is something that was built uh, almost exceptionally and unicately within the British and in a certain measure Scottish poetry. Actually, both of them belong to it, but nevertheless, the, the, uh, concerning sensitivity, there are quite opposite characters. I'm, I'm actually very anxious. I'm very curious to listen to them. And here we go, Robert Cole and Susie Reynolds. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to welcome Robert Cole and Susie Reynolds to Poets of the East. Welcome, my friends. Let's talk about your younger years, Robert. My infancy. Yes, yes, the young years of Robert. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I do is because part of our audience is young poets. They look to poets of experience, of longevity, to get some hints, to, to understand what it's like to persevere. Because, you know, no one becomes a poet for, for the economic advantage. No, no, no one. Money, what are you talking about here? Every, every year I get 17 century money. Okay. The competition is strictly 17 century money. And they paid me in uh, guineas. poet, painters, and dramatists in guineas. No, I tell you what, my embryology as a poet started in Kilburn which is the Irish part of London, as you probably know. Some people call it County Kilburn, living below my old granddad, who I really didn't get to know at all. The smog in London was terrible because we got all the power stations zoning in on the centre, and I, I came back covered in, you know, in soot. My father, he suffered with post-traumatic stress, and he couldn't cope. But poetry, said, you've been writing poetry for a long time. I've been writing poetry, so I can't remember when. You see, the thing is, I, I couldn't stay at home. My mother and father, my grandfather knew that I couldn't stay there, so, you know, he took me in, and my aunts and my my grandfather and grandma... And they had poetry books, didn't they? they had my grandfather poetry. would always recite poetry at the wow. dinner table. He was like, I'm not, this isn't my Irish grandfather, by the way. This is my German-Scottish grandfather. Ah. Uh, this, is, this is the rub. But poets are always got a story of one, right? Of course. Of course. So if if my, we didn't feel... I, 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 I was so happy with my grandparents. 
you know, I was kind of strong and, uh, all my life. I mean, I never looked back until recently. I, I had a massive goddamn breakdown with a stroke. And then this, this gear that had given me opened up my mind and I remembered everything. It, almost a point of conception. It, it was horrific. And the kids, there was quite a family, and my dad and his sisters and brother and so forth, they, they would go off to the seaside in the taxi, you know, at weekends, and the other kids were there, they were nowhere. They just used to play football in the yard, whatever. Petticoat Lane. And oh, my, that's my family are in the musical business. My, my great uncle was a performer in the musical. My uncle Charlie, he was a. Uh, yeah, the magazine in the, in the East End, where all the acts, you know, like all the acts, Little Titch and um, Matt Lloyd, they'd all be in the, in the paper. And he would, like, decide who was who, when they uh, would perform and all that. He was very nice. Man. Yeah, but he's, he's a powerful Charlie, Uncle Charlie's. Well, very powerful man. I, I go on about my family forever, but they rejected me. I ended up in the forest at the bottom of where my grandparents lived, and I didn't know from where I come from. But one time I used to say, "Well, where the hell was I born?" She used to say, "He'll be back for dinner because he always comes back to eat." He'll <laughs> be back when he's hungry. Out of the forest, <laughs> I come out of the forest. I'll be back. I did the life of Mowgli. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. The, the path. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, Look. as you're, you're a young man, obviously you're doing a lot of thinking, and, and inevitably you began to do some writing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I, I did a lot of reading. I, I read Shakespeare in the Bible, and, uh, you know, Francis Bacon essays and I loved essays and I loved books and every single book in the house because my aunt was a kindergarten teacher she had the misfortune of being born on the same day as the war was declared you know wow that was her what was it she's under 40 years old when that happened but the thing is you know um what about writing in Essex magazine what oh jeez oh, I know yeah was it the beginning that was the beginning at school oh yeah I, I was yeah, I, I was on those you guys getting school magazine. You, know. you won a competition. Oh, I, I won a competition. Of course I did. Jesus Christ, I've forgotten all about that. It was called Our Enfield, like it was a big deal, you know. And but I had an Irish monk teaching me poetry at school, well, and his father was a grave undertaker, yeah, from Ireland. His name was Charles Kennedy, and I was this is a great, I went to the Scouts, for some reason I was at the Scouts, which was a humiliating experience, I assure you. So, he turns to me, this guy from school, he says, Kennedy's been shot. I said, oh Jesus, what are you mean, Charles Kennedy, I have an English teacher? Oh, fuck, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> he didn't watch Different the Kennedy. Different <laughs> <laughs> Kennedy, Jesus, oh, it's terrible. I was talking about poetry. I, I, I was I was brought up in the same area as Edgar Allan Poe. You know, um, and we talk about Pinter and so forth. He he was just actually next door. Keats. Oh, Keats as well. John you went Keats, to the Keats Academy, I, didn't you? <laughs> my whole school then turned into the Keats Academy. No <laughs> <laughs> But they're all academies now. I mean, it doesn't mean they're damn, it doesn't mean damn thing. 
But when I looked at it, I felt pleased it was a Keats again. I used to walk around with a copy of the complete John Keats under my arm. Wow. I wrote a poem. I'm not a poem. I, I did write a poem because you know the diss around for John Keats. But many years before this, in Brentwood, where I was brought up, you know, with my grandfather and aunts, I wrote this play on Keats' life. I read Plum on the Georges, you know, like the Hanoverian court and so forth. So I was in, I was tuned in to write about Keats, Lee Hunt, the publisher, and so forth. And you like Kafka now, don't you? Oh, Kafka. I, got, I, I tuned in to Kafka very early, about 14 years old. I was a prolific reader. Kafka, George Orwell, the whole schmear, you know? Uh, I was into Pinter's plays, but also Joe Orton. Do you know Joe Orton? No, I don't know that name. Oh, yeah, he's good. I mean, he's really good. I mean, he comes from Leicester. And, um, he wrote a Frick Up Your Ear. Yeah, there's a play about him called Frick Up Your Ear, but his plays, and he's a really very fine playwright. Now, in the first year at school, Charles Kennedy also did drama with us, taught us drama. So, in the hall, in the first year, I had performed the, the whole, performed the play of mine I wrote in Brentwood. Now, I was kind of, Wanting to be a playwright. I mean, my grandfather gave me like two, two and six whenever I saw him. And we were going through Liverpool Street Station, just me and my mum. And um, I bought a copy of, of the complete works of Shakespeare. And I remember another occasion buying the complete works of Oscar Wilde. And that set me off on, on a trajectory, you know, and you like the Liverpool poets, too? Oh, the Liverpool poets, yeah. When I was at school, I was always reading Liverpool. Roger McGough, you know. I didn't know I'd ever meet him, but I was actually on the same, same stage. Uh, it was down... Um, I lost the audience, man. Um, Roger McGough was on the stage reading his stuff. You know, so he's a great guy, you know. Now, at Dartford, this is at Dartford, poetry um, convention. Okay, so he's on the stage. You've got masses of audience. Now, uh, okay, everyone quits to go for a coffee, I'm on next. So, <laughs> sparse audience, but nevertheless, I'm a young guy still. Um, you were you offered know, a publication. I was offered a publication, I know, with Blackstone. Yeah. But, yeah, not bad. But I didn't take it up like a fool. But I did meet a guy who did me a good service in in my sci-fi writer. I'm a sci-fi writer, predominantly, as you well number it. This is... Um, the, the late Steve Sneed. Oh, yeah, he's great. The late and lament Steve Sneed. He published a book of your poems, didn't he? Oh, sure he did, yeah. Manchester Revenge. Yeah, he was know. great. Extremely brilliant. Oh, sci-fi poet, yeah. One of the things I want to ask you is, having read your work now for a little more than a year and enjoyed, enjoyed it very much, I am very intrigued by the fact that you include a range of ideas, a range of issues that include the sciences, that include history, the macro, the micro. And I think you are one of the more eclectic voices that I know. Talk to me just a little bit about your love for the sciences, because you must have read an awful lot of science to write some of the fine work that you do that includes everything from, should we say, ancient Sumeria to subatomic physics. It's just such a wonderful range of work. Were you always interested in the sciences? 
what intrigues you about the sciences? Yeah, I've always been interested in the sciences. I used to do little experiments. When I actually got home to my parents, eventually they dragged me back. And I love my mother, you know. Susie's telling me not to get emotional. But in the kitchen, I would do little science experiments. <sighs> my uncle, who lived in America, you know, since I was three years old, he sent me money at Christmas, birthday, and uh, I, I bought a chemistry set. So I used to do little... And I used to have like a ladybird book of chemistry and and also magnetism. And so I used to buy magnets and and use the the iron filings and do all that stuff. Also aeronautics. So I used to make little planes and with it with aerolons and darts and so on. What about that essay you wrote? My mum used to come out into the yard and she said, "They've already invented that." So okay. <laughs> What about, what about your um, essay that you wrote for the school magazine in science? Oh, yeah. Essay I wrote for the school magazine when I was like, oh, this is ridiculous, man. I, I would be 12, 13. Time and space, right? And Charles Kennedy said, if there's any boy that understands this essay, uh, please write to me. <laughs> I thought, thanks a lot, mate. <laughs> but it's pure Einstein. I loved Einstein for some reason. I don't know why. Did everyone like Einstein? I didn't know Einstein after what he did in, uh, you know, in Arizona and Manhattan. Right, right. Let's turn to poetry. You know, you have so many wonderful poems, sir. I'm going to ask you to read me one or two of those, and then I'm going to turn to Susie and have her give me one or two of those, and then we'll turn back to you and do one or two. So can I trouble you, sir, to read one of your recent poems? I will find it. I'm totally bloody inept. You must realize that. This is called World Without End, okay? I also studied the mathematics and physics at school. You know? I'm a useless mm-hmm. mathematician. I have no idea of number. I think it's because I was caned by them. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, aren't you finished? Uh, one of, I had two aunts. One for um, a soft cop and a hard cop arm. You know? <laughs> anyway, nothing done there. A world without end. A world without within, infused with love, on a springtide, turning on an axis, angels on a pin, a lambent flame of passion, always blessed and praised. Desert, an ice flames crossing Polaris, aurora borealis, avoiding landfill burning in the court of the Sadducees, at the focal point of humankind, deciphering the purloined manuscripts, sidereal time, weaving wormholes, silhouettes of Philistines and Jacobins, on lampshades, could only be a dream, escaping into Egypt in a blood wind. Very nice, sir. Very nice. Thank you. Want to read one more, and then we'll pass it over to Susie? Oh, okay, surely. Uh, Deus Ex Machina. Travelling across the jewellery of the night sky, Gagenshine refracted from the planisphere, Aegean travellers from beyond the Tyrrhenian Sea, Pleiades hung in the branches of an olive tree, spinning fireflies, demi-semi-quavers, shape-shifting in dust boats of ocean waves, exoskeletons of constellations, 
villages shivering across burning live oak, domain dedicated a sunstone temple at the Acropolis celebrating Saturnalia in the mountains, woods, werewolves from Transylvania, necropolis in the Carpathian Valley, a starving thraldom crossing the river waters in battalions, an eidolon of basalt from Egypt as a talisman. Wonderful, wonderful. Thanks, Ray. I so enjoy your voyages, sir. Again, from the deep science to the deep culture, being a fan of both history and culture and science, I, I, have, uh, I enjoy your work tremendously, my brother. Thank you so much. Cheers. I'll pass you back to Susan. Okie doke. Good. My dear Susie, you know, it, it's so wonderful to have two such stunning artists working together, living together, helping each other. Uh, you, you both are just a real, just a tribute to what can be done. The artist's life is never easy, and to work together with two artists is, is even more difficult, but I salute you. I, I have the same good fortune. I have a wonderful artist yeah. for a wife. Uh, again, I just, I just can't praise you both enough. You, you do such wonderful work. Susan. Robert's my inspiration, actually. He's my inspiration, and he's very modest about the things he's done. I mean, he's done so many readings all, all over the world. He's done a lot of stuff, and he hasn't mentioned it. But I'm just saying that because, anyway, yeah. Well, you... in my experience, the best people are always modest. <laughs> it's true, actually. Yeah, I think so. Most and, and of course, you like haven't yourself, spoke, actually. <laughs> you haven't spoken about your own many, many wonderful things. So oh. I'm going to give you a chance to, to break that modest veil and to read some of your own work, okay? Thank you. Okay. This is called Love Denies Its Hour. Love denies its hour when a blue moon has risen and the Pope forgets to pray. Witches fly by night as wizards release trapped rainbows to light their way. Resonate the silence. Make love as you may. Hasten the time for brouhaha. Never forget our songs, the night of our first day. Long gone the Maytime rites. Memories tease us on a lonely road where a toad journeyed before, straight from a witch's moor. It shows us the way. I hesitate. Beautiful, beautiful. Robert, how about one from you while we're waiting for Susie to find another one of hers? Yeah, returning to the mountains. Holy Sepulchre in the sanctuary of Jerusalem, the tabernacle of the Magi, Immaculate Conception, inside the Temple of the Sadducees, Paradise, outside time, on the hills of Galilee, Golgotha, the sacred flowers weaving about the tomb, everlasting life at Jacob's Ladder, angels ascending within the daylight stars invisibility, Primavera, Magna Mater, Venus, Urania, Father and Nation, Abram of Chaldea, sacrificing his heart, alchemic, quicksilver, of its genesis, a Ptolemaic prophecy, from the end to the beginning, Alpha to Omega, conjuring up the schismatic galaxy, 
intergalactic travellers from Kepler's exoplanets touching down in Terra Incognito, an ecliptic zodiac. Very nice, sir. Very nice. Seriously, lend you something. This is called Shells of Ages. A fragmented flute, sorry, Shells of Ages. A fragmented flute as the dancers waver. The tide of colours pulverise the sand into hollows where turtles crawl. Transformed by dancing men, their shells of ages bliss out. They donate their eggs to Quetzalcoatl, dream the sunking's dream, polished by oceans for over a hundred years, rings begat rings. They mate as darkness descends, a hollering as they gel, in whiplash hallelujahs, on the greyest of, of grey stones. The full moon pulls them anew across the centuries, their golden eyes flickering, while we humans fumble, blind to beauty, desecrate the towering ziggurats, Disturb the nectar-eating honeybirds, hummingbirds, drink mezcal, shafted by the sun. Very nice. Very nice. Susie, let me ask you another question. Um, now, you've been writing for a long time. And, and I always try to ask my poets who have some maturity, talk for a minute when, when some young poet turns to you and says, you know, should I do this? Is it worth it? Is it, is it worth my trouble and heartache? Should I, should I continue to write or can I? Am I worthy? What would you say to a young poet? I'd say, yes, definitely write. Write. Whatever, whatever you want to write, you write. Whether it's about yourself or your environment, whatever, just write. If it's inside, usually it's inside yourself. So it's something of you coming out, you know, and it's important because it's part of you. And, and I always think, read poetry as well. Always read it. Don't read Excellent. other poets. Now, important. did you find another one? Well, read anyone you <laughs> um, like. I'm glad well, I can help a little. Thank you. This is called Moonlight Sonata. Okay. An obelisk I was placed in the window. My back was like a slab of marble, you said. Outside lights caressed the streets far below, in the funereal plumage of night dressed for the occasion. A distant planet, a shooting star, enters my peripheral vision. Helen of Troy escaped from the horse, a gift worth the taking. But no, this is no internment, though your wine glasses are smeared with blood from the last time. You said it's a chaos of love. Whatever love is, as I pick out the fragments of glass from my mouth, my tongue is blissed out in silence as your music plays. A piece to die for, your hands on my thighs, a mask of laughter. Champagne bottle drains out its inside. A glut of words, the laughter of the planets as the moon serenades us. The silence of death in the mortifying streets. They're playing our songs. Bravo, bravo. One more? With, there's one that goes with that one, which I could read a different one if you like. I mean, no, no, your choice, my dear, your choice. All <laughs> gems. I'm going to do my dream catcher then because, well, I, as you know, I'm part, part Cherokee. In my ancient history, I've got some Cherokee, strangely enough. And um, so I'm a little bit into, like, dream catchers, for one thing. And this is okay. about a dream catcher, this okay. one. So to put the long story short, then, right. And this is for Gussie, our dog, 
because he came back with something coarse on his coat. Right. Unthread it from your coat of many colours. Your thick hair holds it together. Its loops so perfect, wound with grasses, too intricate to detail. A feather donated to complete the circle by an unsuspecting songbird. A bird which frisks the night of its charms. Heavy with the fragrance of night flowers. I linger a while, dreaming those biblical dreams, those dream readers. Stars in the heavens cover you with exquisite light, forever charming, even these gnats in their dance routines. But now I have it in my hands and wonder what fairy hands twined it in your coat. My little love dog, dog of my dreams, breathing fierily as the sun sets in your breast. Ever deny that you were visited tonight by magicians, you on four paws who regularly pound the canal as we drink in nature's phantoms. I wonder, will I dream tonight? The dream catcher rests on my desk. The rest is for the Pharisees to decide, those on the other side, who benefit from dreamers like me, who fill them up with colours of the wind. Honeysuckle lingers on your coat, and we will both dream tonight. Very nice. Thank you so much. That was really lovely. Thank you. Let's turn back over to Robert for another couple, and then we'll wrap it up for today. Good, sir. Let me, before you read, let me ask you this question. There's a young poet comes up to you and says, you know, I, I, I look at you, and I'm, I'm so impressed, and I wonder, could I ever do that? Should I continue writing? I'm not sure that my writing is adequate. What do you say to a young poet, sir? I would say reach into yourself and you'll find he's like Raymond Carver, you know, in Fires. I mean, I think Carver, he, in his last days, he was very interested in, uh, I think he would check off and everything would check off for him. All our writers are spirit. There's a, there, there is a, a common spirit for every writer. Every writer tunes into that, that muse. It kind of a, it's a spiritual thing. And I think poets are born and not made. People can learn versification, but a true poet, the Romans had a tag, a Latin tag, which I don't know. Poets are born, not made. I think we have poetry thrust upon us by life's experiences, you know. And in a way, it's a, a pressure valve. Art, all art is a pressure valve. Life is so beautiful, and yet it can be very tricky. It's like riding a, riding you know, in a fairground on a switchback. Life can be like a male ride around a hairpin bend on a mountainside. But we just have to have faith, you know? Very nice. We wake up in the morning, we're lucky that so it doesn't fall out of space and <laughs> we walk out the door, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> Would you like we're, to read one more? We're sir? alive. I mean, it's all to do with the moment of conception. You know, it's so important because God does exist. You know, I mean, I pretend to be a philosopher, but I know I'm a poet. Well, there's not a poet that isn't a philosopher, in my opinion. Yeah, indeed, <laughs> indeed. From so, sir, would you read one more of your wonderful poems? This is the man who has a big idea, attracted by your lodestar, transformed from a nematode. Human law of selection, destruction, shape-shifting, glimpses, 
through the rear view, earth-like mirrors reflecting from Alpha Centauri, attracted by your lodestar. Crossing the river valley, intergalactic travelers from beyond the planisphere, Arizona to the South Ural via Gobi. Welcome to the mountains of the moon, valley of the shadow on the sun, occidental dimensions, Copernicus, Lucretius, smoke worlds, other world illusions, prehistoric exoplanets, spinning nuclei, Nahandertal cosmology from Karnak to Lasco, beginning in the morning sky, Boolean or Euclidean, Mantissa, Cape Canaveral, or predated NASA, crash landing at Roswell, New Mexico, intergalactic travelers from Sagittarius, a quintillion from Earthlight, Apollo 13, attracted by your lodestar, transformed from a nematode being. Thank you, sir. That was wonderful. I I want to thank you both. It's been just a wonderful chance to visit with the two of you, have a chance to hear a little bit more about the wonderful lives you've led. Uh, You are an inspiration to all writers. Uh, Thank you, my friends. Thank you so very much. Thank you for being so patient with us, actually. (laughs) Thank you for being our techno guide. (laughs) (laughs) Our techno guru. I I like to think of it as perseverance, although sometimes it's called stubbornness. Thank you both. (laughs) By the way, I love your poems, the ones you read on the Tuesday session, the the robot ones. They were incredible. Thank you so much. Particularly those. Yeah, enjoyed those. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you again. Have a good evening. My my best to you both, okay? Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. And now back to the special sensitivity and spontaneity of Catrice Gvir, the second part. How about another poem from Catrice? Sure. Since we are talking about frequencies, uh, I thought I would read one about frequency. And it's actually a love poem. Um, It's called In the Frequency. And it plays on all of the words, you know. So, OM is O-H-M, meaning the OMs. Resistance is useless. (laughs) Yes. And I also use OM as an OM for meditative, you know, so I'm, I'm playing a lot with a lot of different words. It's easier to see on the page, but because you know, and Hertz, H-E-R-T-Z, and then in other times I'm using H-U-R-T-S. So there's a lot of homophone, homonym play going on in this poem. So um, this is going to be published soon uh, in the Pandemic Love Anthology by Eiffel Press. Um, This is called In the Frequency. Is it possible that in the frequency you found in me the grounded parts of yourself, thundering, whole, uncracked, circuits left broken by distorted, unsafe currents back in safe mode, 
a kundalini coiled, waiting. You found me awakened, fluttered, atrial, beating ohms, feeding for you in this virtual space, pulses speaking our ebbs, flows, synergies blown through, amplified, crested in our pixelated silences. We see better. We get closer. You've written your ballad into me, call and response. Could it be me, lyrical, etched into this time again, entwined? You sing the song my electrified marrow's been waiting to hear, gather itself. And it is written on the inside of me, growled in an echo serenading deep in the night that sings me to sleep, pulsating a lullaby, rocking me sound. We can't say our goodbye. No, not this time. We've only just said our lifetime of hellos. I need you here in the crests and the troughs, riding high, pinned low, blown through, boundless in this digital hyperspace, shuttling past hurts, time travelers, no night or day, no need for time or to keep pace with light. We ride this current, twin energies synced. We recognize our hurts, combined altitudes. We go counterclockwise higher. I hear you astral traveling, feel you in the night, and you touch me when you think I cannot hear you thinking me there. Three-dimensional seduction uncoiled, elevated, vibrating. You find your way inside me willingly, unbraced, ungrounded, where we sing our songs, electronic duets across oceans, time, space, channeled, charged. Beautiful. Beautiful. I absolutely enjoy that. When, when I was studying for my uh, engineering license, broadcast engineering license, I had I tried so hard to really get the logic of circuits, right? I had this amazing dream where I saw the world and all the people in it as some were capacitors, some were resistors, some were transistors, some were gates, some were op-amps. And I, I had that realization, and I totally saw the world for like the next two days totally a circus. I absolutely enjoyed that. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for listening. <laughs> and it's always nice to talk to people because everyone gets something different from it, you know, and it's always nice to talk to people for whom the science makes sense and makes a difference because it's, it's fun, you know, it's fun with science. Let, may I share one of my science poems with you? Oh, please. You know, I, I, I always feel guilty asking my friends, the poets, to perform their work without, without some compensation, without some small modicum of, of a tailback. So this is, a, hold on one sec. This is called the Bronto I Never Saurus. And <laughs> the title. The, the 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 point of this poem was I had heard this amazing, amazing uh, news story 
that scientists have reevaluated the fossil record, and it seems that what we've been calling Brontosaurus, right, mm-hmm. in, in retrospect, really, these were just teenage Diplodocuses. So they have decided that Brontosaurus is a term without a thing. It is a mistake. And they never existed. And then, you know, I was feeling fairly philosophical when I heard that story. And I said, now, wait a minute. It's one thing to be extinct. Mm -hmm. It's a whole other thing to even have extinction snatched away. Wow. So, and listen, you're talking to a guy who had, I had a Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton when I was five. Okay, I had brontosauruses and stegosauruses and tracheosaurs and all that stuff. I do these things intimately. I've owned their skeletons, but but now, so this, the bronto, I never saurus. Oh bronto, so sorry saurus. Not once, but twice removed from us. Not relinquished to museum rust. Not languished. Piano-weary neath a veil of dust must while away the hours you trust so far away from us you twice. It isn't really very. Not only do you no longer live, not now, in even that slim aware must give no live. Because, they said, you never did. Not even once did breathing live. Do dunsing life, not ever child, not ever wife. Reclaimed once it seemed from ancient mire, now so short an hour's retire. Twitch tossed, great long tailed beast five hundred tons, weaving through our imagination your lumberings come. We saw you dumb, we saw you ten elephants long. We never thought you hadn't come. <clears throat> Twas said, twixt head and tail, a bristly bundle of fibrous fun, you drove two brains instead of one. You cheated death. You cheated grave. You never even really came. A misidee they now are knowing. Heard from scientific newscasts growing. Now they know. Now seems saying. Those in whose minds you once seemed playing. Two hundred tons. A slowly moving mountain of mistake. You didn't nuzzle the reeds at the lake. You didn't puzzle at volcanic passion. You didn't stumble through the marshy morning. While midst munching grasses, muffle yawning, you didn't hug the sunlight's strength. You never stretched your tail its length. If you live, lusty, longer, in the mind of those to whom the thought of Bronto comes, small pleasure this, then take it comes. You're honored here, if ever future number, ancient fossils done. Oh, that is awesome. What a great ode. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much. My dear, how about another one of those marvelous voyages with Catrice? Okay. Um, and and you, listening to you reading your poem reminds me of how they did Pluto as a planet, you know? Yes, I was, exactly. I exactly. was thinking that the whole time. I was like, now you see it, now you don't. They snatch away your dreams when you all these years, you know? I love that poem. i, I got to hear that again one day. Sure, sure. Um, I was thinking about doing a song poem, a performance Please. piece this time. Please. Um, 
this is called Pick Me, and um, I wrote it. I'm going to adjust these on my head so that I can hear my own voice better. Um, there's a bit of song interspersed in there, and basically it's about loneliness. Uh, and although I use the gender of a, a woman or female in here, it really applies to anyone. Um, of how we are we waiting for someone to choose us as mates or choose us for anything or do we take our own autonomy into our own grasp and and go forth this is and I use an orange orchard orange or an orange orchard <laughs> to pick this um, it's called pick me in the orchard they hang, swaying in the morning's breath, long since ripened, dry puckered rinds, leathered, turning on the nub, drinking the dawn and the dew, each one swaying. Pick me. Pick me. These waters run deep, running, running free. Take me, take me in the sun when the day's done. Oh, pick me. These waters run deep. Running, running free, pick me, pick me. Which one? This one, nimble, peeling back its pebbled skin, hiding the sheathed face of her fruit, unthreads the pit. Gentle, gentle, each ribbon strand spinning gold setting her free from imprisoned rind, pulling back stubborn membranes, the opaque veil of her sectioned. Despite embittered seas, she is there, swimming, juiced, shedding her skin. Her fruity soul, skinless, dripping, cradled in the lush grasses, sprung to hold her up. The fall was a jump. She chose herself. These waters run deep, running, running free. Pick me, pick me in the sun when the day is done. Pick me. These waters run deep. Running, running free. Pick me. Pick me. Pick me. Beautiful. Pick me. The uh, mention of the fall in that poem um, is a reference to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Sure. 
and um, it's my dig at Milton because he pisses me off. And um, so it's I, I, I write it nicely though as a as a little as a little uh, what do you call it footnote. It's a strong dissenting rebuttal to Milton's depiction of Eve and her own sense of intelligent and pers- intelligence and personal agency. He made it her fault, but I really, I, <laughs> but even if she made a terrible choice, it's still a choice of autonomy, um, rather necessarily one of just ignorance. Um, she made a decision, and, uh, and so I think he missed part of that, but I give him some Black because of the times he was in, <laughs> but it's my it's my dig at you, Milton. <laughs> so. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, to me, the, there's there's certain special parts of art, like the hidden the hidden choice you have there of of that term and and the reference to you. Uh, I think of the knowing looks shared between musicians on a stage. My dear, this has been so charming. I, I can't thank you enough. I I had heard you, knew you were a great poet. I am now so much more in awe. You are such a fine human being, so eloquent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. This really got my day started off great, and I'm still very grateful and honored Especially to get a minute to meet you a little longer than the couple minutes we get to see each other in our in our Brady Bunch boxes um, huh. or Hollywood Squares, you know. Um, so this was a really enjoyable enjoyable show. You're you're awesome. Thank you so much. Well, the feeling is mutual, my dear. Ladies and gentlemen, that was in order, Eva. Petropolu, Yanoi, and then we had uh, Robert Cole and Susie Reynolds, and we wrapped up with Catrice Greer. What amazing voices. Misha, your thoughts, sir? Well, very short and very concentrated. A strong, a complex, a full episode, as we tried to make all of them. Actually, it will be one of the last one of the last ones because uh, our series is uh, about to end. We would like very much to continuing continue it. So if you intend and you would like to help, please address Rick or Mirta. Thank you very much for being with us until now. Maybe also in the future. All the best. Thank you so much, Misha. An honor and a pleasure to have you with me. This has been just a treat. We have one more episode, as he said, of Poets of the East. If you can help, if you can contribute, contact Misha, contact me. We're going to do this, and every way we can, we want to make this continue. Thanks so much. And we'll leave you with a little bit of music.
Well, friends, that's it for the next to the last show of Poets of the East. Unless, unless somehow means are found. So if you like this show, please leave it in show. If you want to see even more poets, then let us know. Contact Misha or myself. Misha, my brother, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for inviting me to a new episode. Let's hope in the future. Let's hope we may continue all continue this. Poetry does deserve all this. Have wonderful wonderful afternoon in America. Good night, Central Europe. Okay. Thanks again and good night to my brother. Bye bye. Bye.